0: Hey, lurid listeners, this is your favorite sexy librarian, Rose Carraway here, getting ready to inject you with some more fabulous free audio erotica. First, as always, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all that are listening, and of course, a huge thank you to you guys on behalf of all the musicians and guest narrators on the KMQ. As you all know, subscribing and leaving me sexy reviews is what keeps this show going. I would do it anyway, but who am I kidding? It's you guys that actually make this more fun. Gotta Have It is still kicking ass in Audible, so thank you to everyone for purchasing and leaving your sexy reviews. If you have not yet, go ahead and use one of your Audible credits. It's eight hours of erotic stories, so get some. Plus, it's edited by the fabulous Rachel Kramer Bustle. Today's story is titled... The beacon and it's written by me but first i'm gonna start you guys off with a special guest narrator my dear friend lucy malone is returning to perform a cute little story how the little mermaid got her tail back by andrea dale so kick back relax and enjoy
1: Once upon a time, there was a woman who, after consuming enough vodka gimlets to loosen her tongue, finally dared to confess to her husband all the dark, delicious, dirty things she wanted done to her. Unfortunately, her husband thought her desires were disgusting and degrading and told her so in no uncertain terms. She stuffed those needs back into the dungeon of her subconscious and pretended it had all been a product of the gimlets. Denied it was what she really wanted, who she really was. Eventually, though, her husband left her for a perky and decidedly unkinky soccer mom type, his parting words a sneer that his new wife wasn't some kind of perverted freak. Our heroine languished, alone and unfulfilled, seriously questioning whether what she wanted was normal and okay. That really, really sucked. Then she met Philip. Philip wanted to hear about her fantasies. It was hard for her to reveal them, though, after the betrayal, but he coaxed them out of her, bit by bit. He stroked her hair, held her close while she blushingly whispered her confessions. Then he fisted his hand in her hair at the base of her skull, held her immobile, and watched her as she gasped and trembled and tried to duck her head away, only to be jerked back by the pain. No, look at me. Tell me more. Helpless, she did. Our heroine, whom we'll call Ella, still couldn't tell him everything. There were things too kinky, too out there, too perverted, that she still feared would drive anyone away, even Philip. But as their relationship progressed, he showed an exceptional capacity for tapping into her secret desires, for anticipating what she feared and craved in equal measures. She teetered on the knife edge of honesty and terror, And that's what made her come so hard, time after time. It should be mentioned, because it's important to the tale, that Ella and Philip met professionally. He was an entrepreneur with a focus on restaurants, and she was a brilliant marketing strategist who knew just how to coax the public into descending in droves on any new venture she put her mark on. After several successful restaurant openings and many, many intense sexual encounters that pushed her to her limits, or so she thought, They joined forces on Philip's newest venture, an upscale sushi joint. I was thinking about a big fish tank in the middle of the room, he said. Exotic fish, frilly, rare, eye-catching ones. Ella shivered as he smiled his wicked smile and added, deadly fish, even, puffers, that sort of thing. Mouth dry, she shook her head. Personal and professional ward. Mermaid. His eyebrows raised as if she'd foolishly asked for mercy. Mermaid? A woman in a mermaid costume, in the tank, she said. In her mind, she could see it, like a burlesque swimming show, only updated and trendy and modern, perfect for this type of restaurant. Risqué, but not distasteful. Think Dita Von but maybe not quite so distracting, because you'll want people focusing on the food. The food, though, it'll be daring, sexy. Audacious, he agreed, and the way he said the word sent thrilling tremors through her, encouraging people to take chances, face their hang-ups about food, and, subconsciously, other things. She couldn't argue with him about that. He always took her ideas and tweaked them ever so slightly, or sometimes blatantly, to be about kink and deviance, and that worked, whether his patrons realized it or not. Some of them did realize it, she knew with a delicious shudder. Some of them looked at her, consideringly, or even enviously. They made a very good team. She designed the ad campaign, started a buzz, made sushi sound like the most desired and deviant thing on the planet. She gave her input on the mermaid tank, and Philip listened intently and then rewarded her for her ideas. There were always hiccups and panics as things got down to the wire, of course. We have a problem. Philip said. We can't find anyone to be the mermaid. He cocked his head, watched her. Even without him touching her, she felt his gaze like a caress. If a caress could be defined as something that bored into her soul, I think you should do it. She sucked in her breath. His request sounded innocuous enough. She'd been a competitive swimmer in high school and college, was no stranger to pool or surf, But for her, it held more. She wanted to please him. He made it sound like a light request. But in truth, it was a command. A command to which she acceded, Because Ella still didn't realize the depth of Philip's depravities. Or, for that matter, how neatly they dovetailed with her own. He didn't show her the mermaid outfit until that night. Not until after she'd had her hair piled artfully atop her head and threaded through with strands of gleaming pearls. After, her waterproof makeup was applied. After, they were in the empty restaurant, and she was admiring the tank in the center of the room. The tank contained a soft faux rock, shaped to perfectly cushion a lounging woman, with her head and upper torso out of the water. Some filmy green plants were spaced to float in the water, which would be added once Ella settled herself in. A wave generator would add some ripples, and fresh air would be pumped in to counteract the fact that a lid would enclose her. Ella's sole job was to sit there and smile and occasionally run her hands through the treasure chest of gold coins and bright gems. In Philip's office at the back of the restaurant, she stripped. She rather hoped he'd do something to her, spank her, maybe, to refresh the pain of the caning he'd given her a few days earlier. Her ass still bore the fading stripes, which felt a bit sore rather than outright stinging. Instead, he just watched her, his dark eyes glittering. She knew that look. It meant he had plans for her, plans that would entail making her cry, making her come, making her sore. He brought out the mermaid outfit. First, the scallop shells that would cover her champagne glass breasts. She'd assumed they'd be some sort of halter top. But oh, no, just the shells themselves, with grooves on the insides that looked like they should hook to something. Her nipples weren't exactly the right shape. That was when Philip produced the clamps. Oh, sweet Poseidon. Her breasts were sensitive, and once Philip had discovered that, he exploited the information at every given opportunity. Clamps, feathers, ice cubes, hot wax, and sometimes just sucking and tweaking until she came and couldn't stand being touched anymore, and he didn't care and forced her to come again. Ella loathed and craved breast play in equal measure. That meant her nipples were already hard even before Philip tightened the clamps on them. She hissed against the pain as it transmuted to pleasure and back again. You will be beautiful tonight, Philip whispered in her ear. You will be perfect. You will be mine. Ella didn't have time to think about his words, because next he revealed her mermaid's tail. She caught her breath. The scales shimmered and danced in emerald, sapphire, and amethyst, not as bright jewel tones, but as muted undersea hues that flowed and sparkled like a prism. When he helped her into it, she discovered how much more he had planned for her. Thanks to the clamps in his very touch, she was already wet and open, She'd tried not to think about how aroused she was, about how she wished for his fingers or his cock or, well, if she'd wished for a dildo, she was certainly getting one now. Built into the tail, the fake cock slipped into her, snugly filling her. She moaned and clamped down on it and probably could have come right there if Philip's words hadn't penetrated her haze. Not yet, my sweet. Not yet, but how long? How excruciatingly long would he make her wait? The tail pressed her legs together, fitting firmly but comfortably around her waist. She couldn't touch herself, couldn't move her legs, couldn't thrust against the dildo. If she concentrated, she could probably clench down rhythmically and bring herself off. Probably? Definitely, given her aroused state. But he told her not yet, and she'd already agreed that he was in charge of when she came. The problem was that the dildo, hard and pressed into her and undeniably there, would keep her stimulated the entire time. She took a deep breath. She could get through this. She repeated that to herself when Philip snicked the tail closed with a tiny lock. He'd release her when he was good and ready. She had no control. Once the shells were hooked to the clamps, sending a fresh wave of pleasure through her, Philip rolled her out to the restaurant floor on a cart, and he and a waiter positioned her in the tank. As the comfortably warm water rose, he kissed her forehead. Do you trust me? She found the question strange. Of course I do. He covered the tank. She was left with the faint humming sound of the motor and the swishing ripples of the water. She languidly flipped her tail up and down, amused by the sensation and the waves she created. Of course, the motion also made the dildo rock inside her. She smiled. She'd enjoy this tease because later, their sex would be incredible. The first guests arrived, peering into the tank before accepting champagne and mingling. She waved at them. Then she caught her breath as her entire groin vibrated to life. Eyes wide, she sought out Philip in the crowd, saw him smiling saw him palming the remote control that operated the clit vibe and made the dildo squirm inside her. Was he serious? Did he really think she could keep from coming if he manipulated her like that? Then she heard his voice and realized there was a speaker in the tank. Sweet mermaid, I would never torture you by denying you pleasure tonight. You have my permission to come at will, as often as you wish. Was he serious? Did he really think she could come here, now, surrounded by people and on display? Did she really think she couldn't? The vibrations weren't up to the max. In fact, he toyed with the remote, sometimes turning it up high, sometimes turning it off completely. Even as he chatted with guests, he watched her. She was drenched inside and out. Whenever she shifted, she felt her juices pooled and slippery inside the tail. Nobody else could tell. Nobody else knew how aroused she was, what sweet torture she suffered. Then, when the room was full and the guests nibbled sushi, Philip cranked up the remote control and nodded at her. No. Her mouth formed the word, a pursed O, but she didn't make a sound. It wouldn't have mattered anyway, because he couldn't hear her. The only thing that would make him stop was if she pushed the button near her right hand, which would release the top of the tank in case of emergency. She didn't want to come in front of a room full of people, but the choice wasn't hers, never had been hers. She was Phillips. She'd given herself to him. She hadn't lied when she'd said she trusted him. The sensations were too much. The buzzing against her clit and the writhing dildo inside her built the pressure to dizzying heights. She barely had time to press her hands against the sides of the tank before the orgasm slammed through her. She thrashed as she came, her tail slapping against the water, her back arching, her shell-clad breasts thrusting up and out. She opened her eyes and tried to compose herself as her climax subsided to gentle pulses. She managed a weak smile at the guests who stared at the tank and flipped her tail as if to say, just part of the act. But Philip didn't turn down the remote, and she felt another orgasm building inexorably, and again she was helpless to stop it. He made her come again and again, delighting she was sure, at her wriggling and squirming and thrashing, her struggles to pretend she wasn't coming her brains out in front of a room full of people. Everything okay, my sweet? He asked during a reprieve. Cheeks flaming, she nodded, and he turned the remote to the max again. Somewhere in the middle of an orgasm, or perhaps in one of the mindless moments between, Ella felt something inside her crack open. The words her husband had left her with, dirty, disgusting, perverted, had hardened and lodged deep in her psyche, blocking her acceptance of who she was, what she wanted. Philip had chipped away at her shame, but now fractures fissured through it. Opening her eyes, she again sought Philip out in the crowd. As their eyes met, he asked again, Do you trust me? She nodded, and then felt a fresh wave of fear and humiliation and arousal crash over her as she watched him hand the remote control to the woman standing beside him. The original story of the Little Mermaid, she remembered, was that the mermaid had given up her tail for the love of a man, and he'd betrayed her and left her in constant pain. Now she understood. She trusted Philip to the point that he could share her with others. She was his prized, beloved possession, and he wouldn't share her unless it was with reverence and respect. He'd given her back her belief that she wasn't wrong, or different, or broken. He'd given her back her tale. Another climax built, and Ella welcomed its freedom. You can bet they lived happily ever after.
0: That was Lucy Malone performing Andrea Dale's How the Little Mermaid Got Her Tail Back. This story and more can be found in the audiobook, Fairy Tale Lust, Erotic Fantasies for Women, edited by Christina Wright. Okay, on with the show. In this episode, I am putting away the BDSM and the monsters. You know, I've got all these stories, and this one is a little different. This is one that I actually almost didn't write. It actually kind of upset me, I guess you could say. Um, A lot of stuff kind of happens within a marriage, good and bad, and sometimes Tragedy happens. Um, It's from the wife's point of view, and she doesn't want to feel anything anymore. She just wants to be done. Um, At least that's what she thinks until she sees her husband's wedding ring. I wanted to highlight the power of physical connection. You both need it and in that need, a gap is filled and then once that gap is filled, it creates a bridge and so the next gap that's gaping open is more easily filled and it just builds and builds and builds until finally there is healing. Um, I know that every single one of you will be able to relate to it. We've all lived it, we've all felt it, we've all had it and God damn it. <laughs> Nothing worth having is easy, ever. The Beacon by Rose Caraway. Snow blew against the windshield, and then the wipers swished it away, with their quiet back-and-forth melancholy beat. Molly didn't want to drive to the infirmary in the snow at 3.30 in the morning, but something had compelled her to thread her arms into the coat sleeves, something so acute that it had caused her to lift the car keys off the hook, step into her snow boots, and leave the protective seclusion of her somber home. She couldn't recall how long it had been since she'd last visited the base. Months? Years? Calculating time always gave her a terrible headache. She winced and held the wheel with loose, apprehensive fingers. She let her eyes follow the road as the headlights led the way toward Dylan. But her mind refused to stay blank. She couldn't not think. Outside home, there were too many things to stimulate those forcibly blocked memories of long ago. She found reprieve by focusing on a more recent time, and her headache eased as she recalled just the last 30 minutes. At 3 o'clock, the phone rang. Molly hadn't been sleeping, though. She'd been sitting on the edge of her bed staring at the various pale-colored pills spilled out on the nightstand like anemic M&Ms scattered around an old, unopened bottle of Grey Goose. It stood, illuminated by the glow of the lamp, surrounded by its loyal candy-pill subjects like a pillar of promise. On the particularly bleak occasions, Molly fantasized about how quickly it would happen and how long she might be able to resist it. How much time would pass before the darkness closed around her? She told herself repeatedly that death had to be easier than the weight of guilt, the feel of loss, and the pain of life. She had come to the point where she couldn't bear any of those emotions anymore, and the temptation to allow death to fulfill its promise was becoming stronger. Tears, old and tireless, Oftentimes came during the days, but mostly they flowed during the nights, unchecked, as she sat and remembered holding her son for three whole weeks. This single memory was the only one that didn't cause her head to blossom with pain. For so long there was a comfort to her suffering. The guilt and misery served as justice for the tender, innocent life that had been lost. But now... She felt so tired. Molly had been staring, transfixed on the pills and bottle on her nightstand, contemplating how best to end her life. When the phone rang, she didn't hear it. She was considering taking just a sip of the vodka, followed by a single pill, then another sip, followed by a handful of pills. When the intrusive rings finally cut the trance of her meditative anguish, she answered the phone. It was a doctor on the other end of the line. Molly hated doctors, hated the way they spoke with scripted understanding, hated the way they looked at her with rehearsed empathy. She listened with a strained, though mild, curiosity. She sat, still slouched on the edge of her bed as the doctor explained that her husband, Dylan, had been admitted to the infirmary on base due to another bar fight. Molly's eyes opened a bit wider at the doctor's distant words. She tried to think about the last time Dylan had gotten into a fight at a bar, but the sharp edges of recollection cut into her brain. Another headache erupted in her skull. She sucked air through her teeth and pressed the palm of her free hand to her temple. But it was anger, not pain, that made her cheeks flush. He still had her damn name listed as his emergency contact. Molly gripped the phone handle tightly, hoping Dylan was in tremendous pain at that very moment. The doctor's word sounds filtered through the receiver, careful and quiet. She wasn't exactly sure what he was saying at this point, as another searing flash came, a memory from long ago cramped within her brain. She had lashed out at Dylan herself once, a very, very long time ago. Her head throbbed as the punch that had landed square on his cheek connected with a painful crunch. She had swung as hard as she could and sprained her own wrist. But another man, she thought, another full-grown man could hit him much harder than she ever could. More than once, Molly found satisfying vengeance in her husband's beatings. Dylan was a staff sergeant for the U.S. Army and his squad saw him more than she did. He'd missed every pregnancy appointment and Nicholas's very first official doctor's visit. Molly had even given birth alone. Resentment, animosity, Those emotions didn't come close to how she felt anymore. They would imply that she still cared. Molly didn't care. She didn't allow that luxury to exist. It hurt too much to feel anything, had no hope, not anymore. First, Nicholas's death brought them together, and Dylan had come home to mourn with her. Molly took comfort in her husband's body. The sexual healing, though good for them both, was only temporary, however. The pain of Nicholas's death could only be put aside for so long. They began to fling blame back and forth like grenades until it broke them apart. A decimated battleground of grief was all that was left between them a vast chasm that couldn't be crossed. They had blamed each other for a while, but privately, Molly blamed herself. The doctors made vain attempts to try and explain that their son had just simply slipped away, that no one was to blame. These things happen, they'd all said. Molly refused counseling, medication, even alcohol to ease her pain. Guilt ensured that she properly bear the loss of her son. She should have watched over Nicholas while he slept in his crib, instead of taking a nap on the couch. She would have heard him stop breathing. She could have saved him. Should have, would have, could have. Those phrases haunted her with every aching breath she took. The tires crunched over the snow as Molly pressed the brake at the security gate. She swiped her ID over the reader and waited for the reflective candy cane arm to lift. The arm hummed as it rose. Molly's gaze lowered to the dash, absently looking at various control knobs. The white line on the AC knob still pointed to the cold setting. Her head ached again. She hadn't adjusted the temp since last summer. She also hadn't noticed that the belt of her full-length winter coat had either never been tied or had come loose. She shivered in the biting Alaskan air, but instead of tying her belt, she welcomed the winter's numbing effects. Following the arrows that led to the infirmary, she saw an open slot and then parked. As she stepped out of the car, it occurred to her that she might not have the strength she needed to face her husband again that her carefully constructed walls would crash down, offering no resistance against him. But she had to face him, had to tell him to remove her name as his emergency contact. Molly had to sever all ties from Dylan. There could be nothing left to connect them. The fact that he still hadn't signed the divorce papers seemed to give her strength, however. But just in case, to fortify her strength, she stood arms spread wide and let the coat open further. She called to the cold, allowed it inside to set deep into her bones until her teeth chattered, a protective cocoon against seeing Dylan again. Only when she felt the freezing air had shielded her sufficiently did she tie the belt with stiff frozen fingers, securing the infusion of icy comfort." It was a dark and dead-silent night on base. No soldiers scrambled about in their hide-and-seek practice drills. No artillery tanks passed by with chest-rattling noise, leaving tracks in the snow. All that surrounded her was the blessed dead silence. The infirmary's fluorescent lights in front of a pair of double-sliding glass doors buzzed and flickered. Molly passed patronizing notice posters, reminding her to cover her coughs and sneezes which made her angry again, and this time she fed off her anger and prepared to face Dylan. On the reception desk counter, she found a lone clipboard chained to an old abused ballpoint pen. She signed in with her first name, but as she scribbled out the last name, her chin trembled. She despised her last name, and with a silent curse, her hand deftly found an old tissue still in her pocket and used it to wipe her nose. Wiping her eyes, blowing her nose, these had become mechanical movements, nearly as reflexive as blinking and breathing. Since there wasn't anyone manning the receptionist desk, Molly took the liberty of heading down the main hall in search of her husband. She peeked left, then right through every open exam room for Dylan until she came to the end of the hallway. The very last door was closed, and Molly swallowed hard. Through the small square window, she peered in and saw him. He looked so small, lying there on the bed, alone, with an arm draped over his eyes. Not at all the muscular, invincible man she used to know and love. He'd suffered, too. Molly reminded herself that it was only right that he should suffer, just as she did, because he hadn't been there for Nicholas— and it made it easier for her to keep a safe distance. She stood in front of the closed door for several moments, staring. A dull, pressuring thud nudged against her skull. It looked like Dylan might be asleep, and she was about to step away, but the slow trickle of a tear streaked down his cheek. She noticed that his hair was disheveled, as much as an inch of hair could be, his uniform must and torn the telltale signs of a battle between men. His boots were still on and muddy from his tussle in the slushy snow. Molly rubbed her temples, debated going inside. Why had she come? What made her throw her coat and snow boots on, then drive in the middle of the night all the way to the hospital? She could have just written him a letter, requesting that he remove her name from his contact list. It certainly couldn't have been to see if Dylan was okay. Molly looked through the small window again. He didn't look okay. But she told herself that she didn't care, not anymore. They hadn't even spoke to one another for months. Her head ached as she tried to calculate time again. Mrs. Smiley? Hearing her last name brought on a wave of nausea. How dare he call her that? She swallowed and bit back her ire. He seems fine to me. Why is he still here? Why was I called? Molly stepped away from the door as though getting caught peeking through the little window would expose something she wasn't prepared to acknowledge. She briefly found it difficult to breathe and was grateful for the door between herself and her husband. She watched the doctor flip through Dylan's medical chart, fighting the desperate urge to run back to the car and drive home. The staff sergeant is fine, just some bumps and bruises, Mrs. Smiley. A scrape here and there, nothing I haven't seen before. He paused a moment so that she could absorb his words, looking her square in the eyes, making her flinch under his surgical stare. Stop looking at me, her insides screamed. Mrs. Smiley, she cut him off, Molly, she said, and tried to swallow the knot in her throat. Molly, the sergeant checks out fine. Nothing a little soap and water won't clean up. Ma'am, it's the Mr. Smiley part of him that has me concerned. The Dylan Smiley part. I have seen soldiers lose every single friend they ever had out there on the battlefield. But when a man faces the loss of a... Molly felt lightheaded, and placed her palm against Dylan's door to steady herself. Somehow, it felt as though she could feel his heartbeat through the wood, and her throat tightened. The doctor reached for her shoulder to assist, but she jerked away from him. He cleared his throat and continued in a more professional tone. I believe he needs professional help. Molly dragged air into her lungs with a shaky breath. The sergeant mentioned that you two lost your son. Stop! She couldn't listen to him anymore. Her mouth tasted bitter. He doesn't need any help. He's not supposed to feel better. How can you possibly think that he could ever feel better? We're supposed to hurt like this. Her voice hissed with venom. I'm sorry. The doctor scribbled something on Dylan's chart and then placed it back into the plastic holder on the wall next to the door. I can't imagine what you are both going through. I won't pretend that I can. But as his doctor, it is my obligation to let you know that Dylan, your husband, Mrs. Smiley, needs help. I might not know how you are feeling from personal experience, but I have seen this kind of destructiveness before. Now, I've already given him the name of a psychiatrist. Dylan mentioned he's tried talking to a therapist before, but this guy I know is really good. In fact, he's damn good, and if you want, I can give him your name too, Mrs., uh, Molly. He stared at her in the same squinted, pleading way all the doctors did, and Molly simply stared back, her face blank. Listen, if you both stop trying, neither of you will survive your loss. That I can promise. His heels clicked hollowly, as he walked away. I don't want to survive this. Neither of us wants to. How dare you assume that we would, she murmured, then looked through the small window again at Dylan. He hadn't moved, but a tiny flash of something caught Molly's eye. She wiped her eyes to get a clearer look. His left hand had been balled up before, but now it hung loose and the golden band around his ring finger shone with a soft yellow glow. In the sunshine, Molly remembered his ring used to glow bright, indestructible, like their marriage. Her thumb slid with a ghost-like instinct to her own vacant ring finger. She'd thrown the ring at him. The pain of happy memories had been a choking weight around her finger, unbearable. Why was he still wearing his, They were no longer they. She observed closely as another trickle of wetness slid down Dylan's cheek. An ache in her chest emerged, and with it, an instinct to wipe his tear away. This instinct brought Molly's hand to the cold metal lever. She pressed down. The door opened too easily. Dylan's arm moved, allowing him to see who'd entered. When his eyes met hers, he covered them again and tightened his fist in the silence, but Molly could still see the sheen of his ring. She considered turning on her heel to leave, to never see him again, but the band, it stayed her feet. She stood, matching his silence, moment by moment. She had nothing to say that hadn't been said already hundreds of times before. It had always been pointless. Her hand balled around the old tissue inside her pocket. It was a damp, useless wad of pointlessness. Dylan's breaths slowly became shallow. Molly watched his chest begin to shake between his breaths. Soon that would be gone, too, she thought. A tiny part of her, a tenderness, hoped it wouldn't be too long. She reminded herself that he deserved to suffer as she did, but a small portion of her hoped he could reach the bleak bottom, where the numbness was easier. Within the exam room, the Alaskan chill had slowly evaporated from her bones, but Molly chose not to remove her coat. If she couldn't be held by Winter's frigid hand, then at least the infirmary's heat could burn her, like the slow beginnings of Hell's hot, suffering grip. She stepped closer to the foot of the hospital bed, staring bleakly at Dylan's worn danners. The toes were scuffed and caked with mud, the laces still frosted with the last remnants of unmelted snow. Her gaze wandered from his military-issued boots to the muddied legs of his uniform. There was an L-shaped tear at his right knee, stained with blood. Molly's brow creased. It had been a long time since she'd seen his blood. Rubbing her temples, she took further inventory of her husband's condition. That strange, mild curiosity returned, leading her search. Dylan's right hand resting over his abdomen revealed scuffed and already scabbing knuckles. He'd hit someone hard enough that it broke the skin. Her husband used to be a man whose every move was intentional. She wondered if he still was, if his strikes were as accurate as he'd meant them to be. After Nicholas died, Dylan became reckless, an instigator. The fights were his coping mechanism, his therapist had said. He's become his own bouncing Betty, waiting for just the right footfall that will lead to irreversible self-destruction. Molly's brow creased together, tighter. This violent masochism was his chosen path of surrender. Molly lifted her eyebrows as she caught the glint of the wedding band again. Why was she so intrigued? There had been countless times that she'd felt the urge to hit things, people, Dylan, until her knuckles bled. But where was the satisfaction she used to experience at seeing his injuries? A nurse hadn't been in to clean any of his wounds, and she should have found solace in that, but hadn't. His rolled-up sleeves revealed even more bruises and scrapes along his arms, and still she waited to revel in it, to dance with familiar sadistic exultance, but couldn't. Molly could see beneath Dylan's other arm, hidden in the shadow, that his chin was also red and she thought she detected some swelling around his tightly drawn mouth. Again, that distracting glimmer of gold blinked and reflected beneath the sterile fluorescent light of the exam room. Dylan's fingers flexed and tightened. Scabs cracked open, releasing a bright red drip from his large middle knuckle, the symbol of life, death, and birth. A small needle prick of pain pinched in her chest, followed by a breathtaking sensation of a rapid pounding, as though something wanted out of her body. Molly felt her heart beating. It thumped hard, hard enough that she could feel the pressure of it in her ears. Unused to such activity, the walls of her chest felt too tight a space for her heart to work within, but it beat nonetheless forcing her breath to come in greater volume. Then something, a sudden shift, happened. Molly's fingertips tingled as anxiety pulsed throughout her veins. She wanted to leave, to flee from this strange elevation, to sit on her bed and stare at the pills on the nightstand. She wanted to sink down again and stop feeling, forever, but her heart was persistent and banged against her sternum. She withdrew her trembling hands from her pockets and clasped them together in an attempt to force the panic rising to cease. She had to find a way to control it, had to force life back down. She glanced at her husband, beaten, broken, a shell of what he once was, and she averted her eyes. While she stared at the ring, the doctor's words pierced her brain. If you both stop trying, you won't survive. Why couldn't he have just left them alone? Fear became lodged in her chest, or maybe it was something else, something far worse to confront. The slow ooze of blood that dripped from Dylan's knuckle had trailed down just enough to gather at his wedding band. Molly's heart took a great leap, and then the sudden blow of a revelation hit. Where she had always suffered on the inside, Dylan sought a more tangible pain. Every single physical injury he'd sustained, Molly had felt. The more she pushed him away, the more self-destructive Dylan became. Not only that, she'd wanted more. But no matter how many bruises, no matter how much of his blood spilled, it was never enough to allay her own guilt. When he'd finally moved out of the house, Molly experienced another great loss and used that pain in the loss of her son. Seeing Dylan now, though, was different. His wounds hurt her too much. Another stunning understanding took hold and initiated her maternal autopilot. Their son, sweet little Nicholas, wouldn't want this harm to befall his mother because she was also him. When his bright blue eyes looked up into hers, he had not seen his mother as a separate being, but a further extension of himself. How dare she destroy that crucial, beautiful connection? She had been so selfish, forgotten to honor the short, beautiful life of her son. Instead, she obsessed on the loss of her son and the void Where her family once existed. But it was her. She was the one. She was still the nucleus of their family, and without her, Dylan would die too. Her body vibrated. This revelation required action now that grief, though still in her heart, didn't block her maternal instincts. She moved slow, purposeful, as Dylan would have. Her feet carried her to the side of the hospital bed, her face strained for composure. She was supposed to be destined to desolate sorrow, but that gleam of gold, that entrancing beacon, led her forward, and it frightened her desperately. The first choking cry vocalized in the small room, but she was quick to cover her mouth and swallow her voice down to silence the rest of it. The tears wouldn't be blinked away. Dylan's bedraggled uniform blurred, but not the band of gold. Molly took another step closer. The heat in the room was stifling. She tried to hang on to it, tried to let it suffocate her, "'but the ring distracted her misery "'and continued to beckon her forward. "'She reached pale, tentative fingers "'to the laces on one of Dylan's boots. "'Whether it was an attempt to absorb "'the last remnants of bitter cold, "'she couldn't determine, "'but she dug her nails between the knots "'until it hurt. "'And when the tightly wound bow came loose, "'she unlaced the rest of the boot. "'Her sniffles and sobs were wet but silent,' as though her vocal cords had forgotten how to make sound. Dylan's chest continued to rise up and down with small shutters, but the rest of his body didn't move. The first boot slid off so easily, and then Molly worked on the other and removed it too. Finally, she peeled both socks off and stared at his feet. She reached to touch his pale skin, Then she allowed both her hands to run up and down the tops of his feet until her heat penetrated his cooler skin. She slowly looked him over, but avoided his eyes. She couldn't bear that level of intimacy. Thankfully, they were still covered by his arm, but she stared at the gold band on his hand and was drawn now to the side of the hospital bed. Mud and blood stains smeared the front of Dylan's fatigues. Two top buttons were missing, and beneath the uniform, Molly noted that the collar of the brown undershirt was stretched and stained with more blood. She wondered just how much of the blood was his. Her fingers shook as she reached for the remaining buttons of his uniform. As the tears flowed, Molly blindly, tenderly eased Dylan's arms from the long-sleeved uniform, and then the ruined undershirt. She continued until his torso was bare. His body was heavy, despite how small it seemed now. Dylan lay back down, his arms no longer guarding his face. She saw fresh bruises that painted his swollen left eye and cheek. The pink-purple color of his swollen nose suggested that it had bled well, too. In the right corner of his mouth, two short gashes indicated where a hard fist had met soft flesh. Molly's finger traced over the lump at his left eyebrow, then down the side of his face, the swollen skin hot to her delicate touch. His tears dampened the pad of her finger as it made its way to Dylan's mouth. He closed his eyes hard and drew in a ragged breath. His chest shuddered in several quick jumps. Molly still couldn't make eye contact. She couldn't. But a fantastic emotion seemed to take over her body. Now both her hands slid ever downward. In a sort of vigorous frenzy, with blurred vision and haste, desperate fingers clotted her husband's belt buckle and unzipped him. He made a weak attempt to stop her, but relented. He wiped his eyes with the back of his hand. The streak of gold caught Molly's eye again. She eased his pants off. His penis lay, short, almost hidden. His testicles spread wide and relaxed. In the past, Molly would watch him while he slept, happy and in love, confident in him and herself, fearless, She remembered marveling at the prodigious growth his penis underwent at her softest touch, so magically. It was something she'd envied in him and wondered just then if she might be able to create the same effect once again. Her eyes burned from crying. They felt swollen and heavy, her body incubating a firestorm of uncertainty and fear. It had hurt to push her husband away, but it was better that way. At least she had control over it. But that ring, how it shone at her, cried for her to come closer still. The stifling heat beneath her coat was unbearable. She untied the belt and let the coat fall open with a great breath of relief as the cooler air caressed her skin. Standing before her husband, she looked down at her own body, stunned. All she wore was Dylan's old university sweatshirt and her black polka dot snow boots. When the phone rang, she'd been in bed. It was part of her nighttime ritual to wear Dylan's sweatshirt, she suddenly realized. Her knees began to shake at the thought. Though she had pushed him away, she still kept him so close. While sitting on the edge of her bed, it was Dylan that surrounded her, prevented her from swallowing those pills. An avalanche washed through her. Dylan had never really been truly gone from her. Something like a groan escaped Dylan's throat, and Molly looked up. A twinkling at his side revealed his wedding band once again, and Molly impulsively lifted a knee onto the bed. Dylan didn't reach for her but held a bruised arm out to cup her as her weight came down. Lying next to him, the smell of alcohol and cigarette smoke tinted his skin. The hollow of his neck, as she brought her nose closer, revealed his true scent. Molly nestled in deeper and draped an arm of her own over his chest. This closeness was difficult for Dylan, too. When his voice, no longer silent within his sobs, finally broke free, Molly's heart pounded harder. She shushed him softly, tenderly, rasped her lips between the bruises along his jawline. Stubble scratched her lips as she kissed him. She tried to move closer, though their bodies were already pressed together. Her own voice now drowned Dylan's as she tried to cry, kiss, and soothe her husband all at once. He took her face in his hands. The dissension of wanting to love and fearing to love were an in instant turmoil, but the conflict seemed to lessen as his thumbs brushed her tears away. She pressed his hand hard against her cheek to brand the white heat of the gold band into her skin, silently pleading for the fear to go away. She held her eyes closed, squeezed them tight, still afraid to look into his eyes. "'Molly?' his voice croaked. She thought her heart might burst, her chest explode out from the agonizing pressure at the sound of his voice. She had forgotten the potent, masculine tone of it. How easily her body responded to it. With her eyes still tightly sealed, she concentrated. Maybe he wouldn't say her name again. But maybe, just maybe, he would.' When the mournful croak of his voice came again, Molly gripped his wrists and forced her eyes open. She had forgotten him. She had forgotten how her name sounded on his lips and longed to hear him say it over and over again. How powerfully tuned to it she felt. The dam broke. The cold of the Alaskan winter no longer protected against despondency. The heat of the exam room no longer choked her. She could finally breathe easier. Molly's defensive walls crumbled, jagged piece by jagged piece. Dylan's whiskered chin and cheeks scrubbed her face with invigorating fire. Together, they sat up on the hospital bed, exchanging wet and tentative kisses giving, and then responding. She moved a hand down. His eager response at her touch caused them both to moan, and Molly began stroking him. Her lips moved furiously, desperate to taste and hungry to soothe, feeling the heat and power that she held in her hand. Both of Dylan's hands cupped her breasts, His thumbs first brushed over her nipples, and then he began pinching them. Molly's hands covered his, encouraging her husband to pinch harder. She needed to feel his presence more. Then she reached for his chest, pinched his nipples, clotted his shoulders, and slid her leg over his, until she straddled him. Her hips were raised as Dylan steadied them with one hand, and she let him guide himself into the place that was once his, the place she used to give him on a whim, without pain, without sadness, without hatred. Molly broke away from his mouth and looked her husband directly in the eyes, and knew, right then, that she had to go on, she must live and return as her husband's lover, so that he could be hers for their son, Nicholas. As her hips lowered, the wide tip pushed inside, and goosebumps erupted all over her. She gasped and clutched Dylan's shoulders for support, then slid down his entire length until her rump met his thighs. The sensation consumed her. When his lips and teeth kissed and nipped each of her breasts, Molly nearly passed out. Dylan's hand supported her back as she arched to meet him. Passion flooded her veins. Molly cried out, clinging to his neck, breathing sharp, heavy breaths. Dylan gripped her hips, found her lips, and began moving her as he needed, as she needed. His fingertips dug into her delicate flesh, and she thrived on it. She thrust her tongue, bit his lips, sucked the thin, salty skin of his neck absorbing as much of him as she possibly could. Abruptly, she released his delicious earlobe and pushed Dylan back on the bed. Dylan's left hand went to his base and he squeezed. Molly remembered that was what he did to prevent himself from coming. The power of it made her thighs tremble. Eager, she scooted down, replaced his hand with hers, and opened her mouth to his tip. With both hands, she held him steady and sucked. Dylan petted the top of her head as she lapped and tasted him. And when she took nearly half of him in, his groan made her stomach flutter. And Molly took even more of him into her mouth. His petting stopped, and she felt her hair being gripped into his fist, so she went farther down. The tip nudged and then pressed against the back of her throat, coating it with his salty juice. Dylan's moans became breathier and needier, and he lifted his hips some to meet her. His need thrilled Molly, and she let her own stifled moans ring out for him to hear. Her nose began to nestle into the patch of dark hair at his base, over and over, closer and closer. And suddenly, Dylan pulled Molly's hair, and her lips gave a loud smacking sound as he pulled from her mouth. Quickly, he grabbed her waist and spun her to her back, making her dizzy. He pressed her breasts together, and with greedy hunger, suckled both tight nipples at once. He released one breast, and slid his hand down between Molly's legs. A possessive grip cupped her pussy, and she opened her legs wide. Grinding her hips against his palm, Molly gasped when she felt his fingers penetrate her. She locked her ankles and clawed Dylan's neck and back. He responded by circling her clitoris with his thumb now, and Molly was instantly lost. She bore down as an orgasm surged throughout her body. She panted as her muscles squeezed, moaned and groaned as she came, until the holding tension finally eased. She could feel the sheen of sweat on her skin and Dylan's. He kissed her lips slowly, though his breath came quickly, hard against mouth and cheek. Molly reached down, grabbed his cock and guided him in, then reached behind and held on to the edge of the bed. Dylan hooked his arms under her thighs, draped her legs high over his back. Each thrust jostled her breasts wildly and shook the hospital bed. He grunted into the air while he worked, his strong arms bracing him. Molly watched his body move, basked in his need of her. In her belly, a fire brewed. Lust grew heavy, urgent. His thrusts gained in speed and strength, and Molly's abdomen tightened, and she cried out. Dylan threw his head back, stilled his movement, and groaned as he spilled into her. He rocked his hips slowly, and Molly tightened around him, milking him until he finally collapsed on top of her. His weight was comforting, his breath calming, his presence soothing. When he slid off to lay next to Molly, his arms stayed around her. She turned into him and nestled into the crook of his arm, and there was no pain, no anger. She lay there for several moments, just listening to the beat of his heart. She missed her husband. She missed her son. for stupid fish productions this is rose caraway
2: take this pill my All relative, subjective, it's
0: I'd like to thank the following musical artists. Chris Zabriskie. His work was the musical backbone of this episode. Chris puts his music out there for free, you guys, for anybody to download. You can also purchase it to show your appreciation. He's being very generous, so go to chriszabriskie.com and send a few clams his way, you guys. I'd also like to thank Grapes, Jazar, Fancy Mike, Dexter Britton, and the feature credits song, Shadows in the Moonlight, by Josh Woodward. Special thanks go to Andrea Dale for her short story, How the Mermaid Got Her Tale Back, from the audiobook, Fairy Tale Lust, Erotic Fantasies for Women, edited by by Christina Wright and narrated by the delicious Lucy Malone. Search her name in iTunes, Amazon, and Audible. She will be more than happy to whisper more sweet, sexy stories in your ear. And if you want more erotic tales from Andrea Dale, just go to kavarwith.com. Speaking of iTunes, Amazon, and Audible, Gotta Have It still kicking butt in the Audible book bestsellers lists. So thank you, thank you, thank you once again for everybody that has purchased their copy of Gotta Have It. Don't forget all you lurid listeners that have reviewed and rated Gotta Have It will be receiving my audiobook tool for free very, very soon as my personal thank you. I love you guys. See you soon.
2: Always coming, always going, while your cup is overflowing, and shadows in the moonlight. It's just a matter of perspective, it's all relative, subjective, and shadows.
0: Stupid fish. (laughs) Mm. Clench my butt, release it. Clench my butt, release it.
2: Okay.